0: Thanks for listening to the Dear Exiles podcast. This message was originally preached on February 13th, 2022 to City Church in downtown Iowa City. You know, I think what we discovered, at least with the people I talked to in our icebreaker today, is that there's not a whole lot that we have to look forward to in the middle of February. Um, anybody <laughs> anybody come to that same conclusion? I mean, maybe actually, maybe some people did have some things, but... We were kind of on the struggle bus to to figure that out today. Um, Just everybody was seeing the snow melting and warmer weather. That's what we want, right? Snow melting and warmer weather. All right, I'm going to get started. Uh, I'm going to read from the book of James in the New Testament, um, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And um, uh, we'll talk about it. uh, Yeah, we'll talk about it some more. This is... uh, the brother of Jesus. So James uh, was an apostle, and he was the half-brother of Jesus, and and we think this was the James who wrote this letter. And so he was writing to some Christians in the first century, Jewish Christians who were kind of scattered abroad, giving them some advice, like, here's how you follow Jesus. Here's how you do church with each other. This is how you be a community. Uh, And this is what he says near the end of his letter. He says, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. If he's he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed." The urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Let me come back to that passage in just a minute, okay? Uh, I want to tell you a story. This winter, my sixth grader and I stumbled upon a British detective show called Father Brown. Has anyone heard of Father Brown? It's on the BBC channel on Amazon. Um, Father Brown, he happens to be a priest in the parish of Kembleford in like the late 40s or early 50s of the 20th century. And Father Brown not only is he passionate about like the spiritual health and the soul health of his parishioners and community, he's also this very curious-minded sort of accidental detective when it comes to crimes of murder, okay? And there are like 9 seasons now and I keep saying to Naomi like there is a disproportionate amount of murder in this little parish, parish of Kembleford. Um, but uh, in most episodes, we'll see Father Brown pedaling furious, furiously on his bicycle through the English countryside with like, his long black priestly robe, his cassock hanging, um, flowing out behind him and never getting caught in the wheels. Um, And he's doing this so he can get to the scene of a crime or he can go question a parishioner. And it seems like he's always trying to solve the mystery of the murder and find the guilty party before the local police inspector can figure it out. Because the inspector is interested in evidence, he's interested in guilt and locking someone up, but Father Brown's first concern is not that they turn themselves into the police. His first concern is that they are given an opportunity to confess their sin and to repent and be made right with God. He often tells the guilty party that he cares more about the health of their soul than he cares about whether they spend some time in prison. Um, He tells them it's never too late to confess, to repent of sin, and make themselves right with God. And he's frequently urging them to just take advantage of this confidential moment before the police get there um, between them and himself, a priest. And some of the confessors in the show, they take him up on his offer, they unburden themselves, you know, of the secret that they've been carrying, and oftentimes like a lot more pain, a lot more things going on in their lives, and then there are others who take their confession, their secret with them to their graves or to prison, and there's always a difference between those who confess and those who remain stubborn and and don't confess. Um, Those who confess, they express this Remorse, and then they seem to have like a peace at the end of the show, even if they do get arrested. The ones who don't confess seem the most burdened and tormented of all as they're, you know, put in handcuffs or as they try to escape. Now, We probably all have different feelings when we think about confession. Some of you were raised Catholic, and confession was a part, like a regular practice of your religious upbringing. Uh, If you went to church, you may have gone into a confessional and spoken with a priest about your sins. Um, One of my friends I made at the dog park this week is an author, um, Tom Sweeney. He, He gave me his memoir, and he wrote in his book rather lightheartedly that Quote, as a devout Irish Catholic, age seven, I was allowed to make my first confession. This was the opportunity to cleanse my soul, to seek forgiveness for seven long years of sinning. Uh, early on in his life, he said, there were these seeds of guilt planted in him, a sense that he was a sinner and that in order to be free from sin and accepted into the church and able to like take communion and participate in other sacraments, um, you had to go to confession. And so he wanted his confession to be really good. Uh, so by the time he ha- got, had his first confession, he wrote, he felt sure that this was the worst confession the priest was going to hear that day. And, and he felt very proud of that. Um, if you were raised with a formalized confession practice, as part of your religious tradition, you may have experienced some nervousness as you were going into confession. Um, you might also have experienced a sense of relief or gratitude after confession if you knew and felt forgiven. But regardless you know, of whether you grew up in that kind of tradition or not, confession is and always has been a practice, a spiritual discipline of the church since the early church. And we've been talking a lot about spiritual disciplines for the last several weeks as ways that we can open ourselves up to God. And not only God, but the grace of God, the the transforming grace of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Confession is one of those spiritual disciplines. Now, if we have ever sinned against God or against another human being, and we all have, We might squirm at the idea of confession to another Christian. We might feel some fear about the judgment of others. We might perhaps fear rejection from others if we were to confess our sin. Uh, We might might worry about punishment or retaliation if we confess to the person that we have wounded. Uh, In the public square in our culture, we see both negative and positive results of confession. Celebrities confess things all the time, right? And at times, they receive support. Other times, they receive criticism. Sometimes, they experience a mixture of both. There was a New York Times article published this week talking about how the gold medal gymnast Simone Biles um, how, when she confessed to struggling with mental illness back in the winter of two thousand and twenty-one, and withdrew um, from from her Olympic uh, competition, she had led the way for other Olympic athletes. This is what the the Times was saying: to feel free to express their own weakness, their own inability to bear up under the stress of the expectations and the physical rigor that was expected of them as Olympic athletes, and. While the confessions of these athletes weren't sin, per se, they were confessions about weakness and confessions about failure and even psychological disorders that developed as a result of their stress. And there was an outpouring of support and also some criticism. You know, other times we see uh, celebrities or politicians confessing things only after they've been caught or charged or sentenced. I read the actress Lori Loughlin, you know the, the everybody's favorite mom on Full House. If you guys remember that show, um, she was charged and sentenced for conspiracy in like a college admissions cheating scandal, and so she gave a statement after, uh, after she was sentenced, you know, saying like, "I allowed myself to be swayed from my moral compass. Uh, I ignored my intuition." and I think a lot of us are appreciative of confession that comes from people we look to uh, in society. But a lot of times, little seeds of doubt are probably planted in us thinking, gosh, you know, would they have confessed if they hadn't gotten caught? You know, like, would they make the same choice again if they knew they wouldn't get caught? And we wonder, you know, in other words, is the confession genuine? Is, is there true remorse? However, I think that as a society, we do recognize that genuine confession and genuine remorse can be cathartic. It can lead to people getting help and support in the areas that they need help and support in. It's why organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous exist so that people can go and confess, right? Things that are are binding them, the demons they are struggling with. Um, So confession can be therapeutic. It can be cathartic on a social level, but... Christian confession or confession that's done within Christian community, uh, it takes that obvious social and psychological benefits of confession to the next level. Um, Dallas Willard, who wrote a wonderful book called The Celebration of Disciplines, said that without the cross of Christ, the discipline of confession would only be psychologically therapeutic, but it's so much more. It involves an objective change in our relationship with God, and a subjective change in us. It's a means of healing and transformation in the inner spirit. And Willard goes on to explain that at the heart of the gospel message is this idea that God has always had the desire to give and to forgive, that he's planned a work of redemption for our sin, and that Jesus so identified with sin when he was on the cross, scripture says, sin was put to death there on the cross in the person of Jesus. And when Jesus cried out right before he gave his last breath, it is finished, it was his way of saying the work of redemption was finished. So confession then is this gift that's been given to followers of Jesus so that we might experience the redemptive work of God in our lives on an ongoing basis. See, if we are followers of Jesus, there was a point at which you probably became a follower of Jesus. Um, You may have confessed your faith, in him. You may have recognized your need for him. You may have repented from sin or felt some remorse for um, the ways that you had lived your life formerly. Um, but in those that moment, we were brought into the family of God. We were born again by God's spirit. And being born again, is just, it's a powerful metaphor that Jesus used, a way of talking about the new life that we have in him. And so we came to God through our faith in Christ, began our discipleship journey. But discipleship Being a disciple of Jesus, it doesn't mean we're whole. It doesn't mean that we still don't have areas in our lives where the Spirit wants to set us free. And the writers of Scripture show us that our salvation, like our being in Christ, is both a one-time event and this ongoing experience of transformation. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, and he said, we all are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. It's God who's transforming us um, through his Spirit uh, as we are on this journey. We're being transformed in the image of Christ. And by the way, like our goal as Christians isn't we just want to be a perfect copy of Jesus. Our goal is to be close to God. And the result of us drawing near to God is that we will be transformed to be more like Jesus And so when we confess, when we repent in our lives as followers of Jesus, it's like we're opening ourselves to receive a gift of grace from God. So I want to go back to that passage that I read earlier and just see how this gift of grace is experienced. And the passage comes, as I said, from the book of James. Um, James is writing, again, to believers scattered abroad, Jewish believers. And these are some final instructions. This is how things should be in the context of your community so that you can all be well in body and in spirit. And first of all, he says in our passage, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. And perhaps James has in mind here the suffering that comes from persecution because um, throughout his letter, um, he refers to the poverty of some of these believers, the trials that some of these believers are going through because of their faith in Jesus, he refers to the oppression against um, the poor uh, from rich and powerful and wealthy people in the city, in the cities they live in. And so he says, if anyone's suffering, he should pray. And then he says, if anyone's cheerful, he should sing praises. You know, maybe there just can't be enough. Cheer. Maybe there just can't be enough praise and joy in the Christian community. After all, there are so many suffering. There are some who are sick and weak and mourning. So he's saying, like, hey, if you're cheerful, sing praises. And then he says something that might sound a little odd to our 21st century ears. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Well, he should call for the elders of the church and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. Now, most of us, if we are familiar with the stories of Jesus' ministry, we would know that Jesus often healed people through physical touch, like, or they touched him and they were healed. But he, here the Lord's brother James is telling the elders of the church, the mature believers in the church, the ones who have had a long track record of trusting in Christ to go and to touch those who are sick and pray for them in the name of the Lord as representatives of Christ on the earth pray for those who are sick release a gift of grace in my name to them now he also says pray for them after anointing them with olive oil and that might seem strange and you might wonder if you get sick am i going to show up at your apartment with a bottle of olive oil and make your face all greasy which i don't think you will appreciate but Um, This is one of those moments in scripture where we have to do a little work to understand what's going on. First of all, it was not uncommon in the first century to dress wounds with oil. Uh, Many different sources, written sources in the first century, refer to therapeutic and medicinal properties of oils, including olive oil. But then second of all, if you are a Jewish believer reading this letter, you would know that in your Old Testament scriptures, oil was used to anoint priests and kings right before they were about to take office. And oil sort of like symbolized the spirit of God resting upon the king or the priest, that he was going to have the authority from God to lead, lead God's people. And so, you know, the oil was this way of, of symbolizing that authority. And so Craig Keener, who's a Bible scholar, he said, you know, maybe Christians combined uh, the symbolic medicinal use of oil with the symbolic um, use of oil from the Old Testament of, of um, handing someone over to the power of God's spirit, of inviting God's spirit to rest upon that person um, to heal them. You know? But we really don't know for sure how they were thinking about it, but that's a, a good explanation. I think it's one that is reasonable. So is anyone sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. James goes on to say... The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. So first he's saying, the prayer of faith can save a sick person, deliver them from illness, make them well, bring wholeness. Does this happen every time we pray for people who are sick? No, it doesn't. But sometimes it does. And, you know, there, that's a long conversation we can have uh, and explore. Why could that be? You know, why Why don't? doesn't everyone get healed every time we pray? Um, but I was asked um, by another minister in town to go to their house and put my hands on them and pray for them because she'd had a migraine headache for days. And I prayed for her. And the next day, she said, you know what? It started getting better after you left, and she was migraine-free. And so um, I just did what James said to do. I went to her house, and I prayed, and she was healed. But then James adds that if that person has committed sins, he will be forgiven, which means God is just as concerned with the sickness of our bodies as he is with our souls Does every sick person have unconfessed sin? No. But if they do, they'll be forgiven. And then James gives us this therefore. Whenever you see therefore in the Bible, just know it's for this reason. Whatever came before, for that reason, now I'm going to tell you something else. For this reason, confess your sins to one another so you may be healed. He's linking some physical sicknesses to unconfessed sin. Now, James is not saying that all unconfessed sin causes sickness or that all sickness is caused by unconfessed sin. He's not saying that. And in fact, Jesus himself demonstrated that that was not true. Sin was not the cause of everyone's sickness. But James is saying there is some sickness that can be caused by unrepented for sin. And I honestly don't think that's much of a stretch for us to wrap our minds around because we live in the 21st century, and I think we understand better than anyone that like, there's a mind-body connection, right? Science has shown us there's a mind-body connection. We understand, and there have been studies to show that you know, bitterness towards someone else, unforgiveness towards someone else can be correlated with certain kinds of disease. Um, we can imagine how a tormented conscience or unceasing anxiety can affect our bodies. Science has shown us this. Now, James does not give us a manual here on which unconfessed sins cause what sickness, but I don't think that's his point, and I don't think that matters for us. I think uh, his concern here is that believers care for one another and that they administer God's grace to each other's bodies and to each other's souls as there is occasion for it. There's a grace that is meant to flow from one believer to another, the power of the Holy Spirit, to see other people made well, and to see other people set free from tormented consciences and sin, or from cancer, or from migraines. In confession, then, we get to experience God's grace. But confession is also a spiritual discipline, because there are some things that we must do in order to practice confession. And this is why it's a discipline. It's We actually have to train ourselves to practice confession. It has to be deliberate, a deliberate choice to open to God in that way. Now, we can confess sin directly to God, and God will forgive us, and we'll receive his grace. And we can also confess to another believer. Scripture makes it clear. Both types of confession are useful and good, but there are times, and maybe you've had one of these times where You have done something wrong and you've been so riddled with guilt and so overcome by sorrow because of your sin. And maybe you've expressed it to God. Maybe you confessed it to God and asked for his forgiveness, but you might not have felt forgiven. Sometimes we don't feel absolved of our sin when we just confess it to God you know, we can't hear God with our ears, we can't hear him say, I forgive you, we can't see his face and his eyes of compassion, and we sometimes actually need other people in the body of Christ who can hear our confession, and who can say, you know what, you're forgiven, God forgives you. Jesus told his disciples in the Gospel of John, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. Sometimes we need an actual person to stand in Christ's place to look in our eyes and say, you are forgiven. And we've been given authority by Jesus to do that for others. In high school, I had a really complicated friendship, and it led me to do some things that were wrong. And I knew they were wrong, and I kept doing them. And I was really sorry, and I was really overcome by shame. I did not want anyone to know. I confessed to God. I stopped doing that eventually. Um, But I didn't feel like I could bring myself to tell anyone because I felt so much shame. And I carried this shame around with me for years. And really the only thing that actually nudged me toward freedom was that I was able to tell another believer who didn't freak out, who didn't judge me, Um, And I could see in her eyes and in her words that I was forgiven. That This was not too big of a sin for God to forgive. And I stopped carrying around that heavy burden of shame. And I, I want us to live in that place where we can give that grace to each other. But we have to be a little practical about how to practice this discipline, don't we? First of all, you have two choices. You can confess to God. You can confess to another believer. Second, if you're confessing to a person, you should choose the right one, okay? And I know some of you are thinking, really confess to another believer? Because you're imagining if you confess sin to just anyone, they might judge you, or they might reject you, or they may not really understand the power of confession, and they might just be like, oh, that's not so bad, like I've done blah, 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 right? Right? We don't want to confess to someone like that. So you need to choose a person who will understand, who will be discreet, who will respond well. Dallas Willard says, choose a person who has, quote, spiritual maturity, wisdom, compassion, good common sense, the ability to keep confidence, and a wholesome sense of humor. They're not going to take things too seriously, right? Most pastors should be able to do this, but there are, Many, many ordinary Christians, including many of you in this room, who can minister this grace as well. Third, you want to check for three ingredients in a confession. Um, Saint Alphonsus Liguri said, for a good confession, three things are necessary. And he said the first one is an examination of conscience. So, an examination of conscience is sometimes something that you do without knowing that you're doing it. It is this a sudden awareness of something on your conscience, right? Awareness of sin. Um, sometimes, though, we examine our conscience deliberately. Uh, it's an invitation that we issue to God. God, I, you know, I think my soul's not all that healthy. Could you show me? Could you light up in my heart what it is that's going on? And sometimes God will let us know. Gosh, we need to confess this sin. We need to turn from this sin. We might know also in a general sense that our souls are not well and that we have some areas of sin in our lives. But if we only confess in a general sense, we actually kind of miss the opportunity to spark healing in our souls. If we're always sticking to those generalized prayers of confession, like we pray sometimes at the beginning of service, um, we miss the opportunity to be specifically restored in a particular area that we really need restoration in. So we want to allow room for an examination of conscience. And then the second element of confession is sorrow. It's not a sorrow that leads to despair. It's not a sorrow that leads to hopelessness. And it's not a sorrow that even has to be demonstrated in wailing or tears. It just needs to be this deep regret and this remorse at having offended the Spirit of God who lives in us and, and possibly hurt and wounded someone else in our lives. And then the third element of confession, St. Alphonsus says, is a determination to avoid sin. We must have a desire when we confess not to repeat the same thing in the future. We can't go to confession and think of it as like I'll just wipe the slate clean right now, and then I'll go out and do that same thing tomorrow, and then I'll just wipe the slate clean next Friday. (laughs) Like, that doesn't actually help us um, grow in Christ. So we must be determined when we make a confession that these behaviors or way of thinking, they're not going to remain part of our lives. Will we sin again? Yeah, we'll probably sin again. Hopefully not in the same way. But if we sin in the same way, if we're overcome by temptation... And we can go through this process again. There are, the God doesn't have like, you know, so many chances and then you're out. We can examine our conscience again. We can receive um, the gift of God's grace and forgiveness again. Um, but genuine confession is always accompanied by a determination for the future to be different. So that's what you do if you are confessing. But what if someone comes to you and wants to confess? What if we're In our Bible study tonight, which Molly's going to tell us more details about, and maybe at the end, somebody feels like, I need to say this is what's going on in my life. What do we do? How do we administer God's grace to people who confess to us? Well, first of all, we need to keep in mind the cross of Christ and that he redeemed us from our worst sins. And if we can keep that as a framework for our conversation, we're not going to be shocked by other people's worst sins. We're not going to be stunned. We're not going to judge them. We're going to know that the grace of God is sufficient to forgive their sins. And we will then convey that in our tone. You know, we'll convey that in our compassion. We'll convey that in our love. And they'll know that they can trust us. Uh, if we know someone wants to confess something to us or they're about to, we can also just begin to pray inwardly, like, Lord, help me to radiate grace to them. Help me to radiate your forgiveness and your compassion to them. Help them to experience healing through this process. And then when someone's talking and confessing, we should be quiet while they're talking. Listen well and listen sensitively and don't change the subject Or talk about your own situation and be like, oh, yeah, you know, I've been there too. You know, like, no, we want to, like, be focused on what they're sharing. And then be praying for them inwardly as they share. Pray that they can really unburden themselves fully. Get to the heart of the matter. And then we need to pray for them out loud. We can even say, hey, can I put my hand on you and pray for you? And we should pray for, like, the inner wounds that they have to be healed that um, there would be healing of relationships that have been broken because of their sin. And we just would invite God to just come and heal the griefs of the past. One thing that we'll notice if we practice this discipline of confession is that freedom leads to freedom. You know, when one person can share and confess in Christian community, others begin to feel like, oh, this is a safe place for me to do this. Um, It's kind of like what the New York Times was saying about Simone Biles and the other Olympic athletes. Oh, one person took that brave step to confess, and then others felt like, oh, I can do that too. I can be honest too about what's going on in my life. So I want to not end our service today without giving us an opportunity to practice the discipline of confession. And we're not going to confess to a person in this room. But if you feel like you need to do that after the service, Identify someone, uh, someone who fits the criteria that I gave you this morning, and go to that person and ask them if you can share with them something, if you can confess something to them. But I want us to have an opportunity to pray the prayer of confession together. Before we do that, I'm going to invite you to examine your conscience. We're just going to have a moment. We're going to ask the Lord to just shine a light in our hearts. You can close your eyes if you want. Lord, in this next moment, we pray that you would shine a light in our heart, that you would show us where our souls have been unhealthy, where there may even be specific sin, maybe even just an unhealthy fear, an anger or bitterness or an action, Lord. Shine a light on our heart, Lord, and show us. I'm going to invite you to, you can whisper what that is if something's come to mind as we pray this prayer of confession, which will be up on the TV invite you to join with me most merciful God we confess that we've sinned against you in thought word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone we've not loved you with our whole heart we've not loved our neighbors as ourselves we are truly sorry and we humbly repent For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. Amen.